You're listening to From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadler. Episode 9, Hellenism Arrives. Writing in the late first century of the Common Era, the Jewish historian Josephus, in his 20-book History of the Jews from the Creation of the World to the Present, tells a story about the arrival of Alexander the Great. Alexander was making his way down the coast of what we call today Israel, seeking to conquer Egypt. Having conquered Gaza with the help of the Samaritan Sanballat, though, Alexander turned his attention to Jerusalem. It was an ominous sign. The story strongly implies that Alexander, advised by Sanballat, who had, however, died during the siege of Gaza, meant to conquer the city. The high priest, Jadua, was duly frightened, and he came up with a plan to confront Alexander and his juggernaut. As Alexander approached, the people of Jerusalem threw open their gates and came out to meet him, the priests dressed in their ceremonial robes. To the surprise of all around him, Alexander paid homage to the Jewish high priest. He later told his companions that he had seen the high priest earlier in a dream in which the high priest told him that dominion over the Persians was his. Alexander, the story continues, offered a sacrifice in the temple, and he was led to believe that Daniel's prophecy about the destruction of the Persian Empire referred to him. Then, before leaving, Alexander confirmed the rights of the Jews to live according to their laws in Jerusalem and abroad, to pay no tribute on the seventh year, and then he enrolled a number of them in his army with the promise that they could continue to follow their own customs. In his incisive analysis of this story, Shia Cohen wrote, The historical Alexander did not visit Jerusalem, did not do obeisance to the high priest, and did not sacrifice to the God of Israel. He was too busy conquering the world to bother with an insignificant inland people living around a small temple. The story that is, like so many of the stories that we have already discussed in this podcast, is a fiction. Cohen, though, argues that it is valuable nevertheless, for it reveals a later deep ambivalence about Alexander in later Jewish imagination. Indeed, even the rabbis, who tell a version of the same story, are not quite sure how to treat Alexander. Was he the evil Greek king who was responsible for the introduction of evil Greek ways, and ultimately the desecration of the Jerusalem temple in the second century BCE? Or was he a brilliant military leader who really was an agent of the divine plan? Did the Jews surrender to Alexander or Alexander to the Jews? Jewish ambivalence about Alexander was hardly unique. Many of the peoples conquered by Alexander could not fail to admire him grudgingly, even as they pondered their conquest. In this episode of the podcast, we move from the Persian period to the Hellenistic period, the political and cultural age initiated by Alexander's conquests. I will briefly trace the political history of Alexander and his successors from the 4th century BCE to around the year 200, and then discuss the cultural complex that would become known as Hellenism. Alexander was born in 356 BCE, the son of a Macedonian king. 
His father had already conquered Greece, and it is interesting to note that Alexander's tutor was the great philosopher Aristotle. Whatever his academic abilities, though, Alexander's genius lay more in war than philosophy. One of his first military conquests was perhaps also his greatest. In 332 BCE, when he was only 24, Alexander defeated the main Persian army and thus took control of the Persian Empire. He followed this up with his sieges of Tyre and then Gaza. Then, subduing Egypt, he marched back up to Western Asia, pursuing and destroying the remnants of the Persian army for continuing further east into Afghanistan and India. He turned his army back to Babylonia and died in 323 BCE in Babylon. Predictably, Alexander's succession turned into a mess. When the dust settled, one of his generals, Ptolemy, ruled Egypt, while another, Seleucus, ruled the area around Syria and the east, stretching into Mesopotamia and modern-day Pakistan. Other generals divvied up other parts of Alexander's empire. Throughout the third century, the area that we now call Israel was caught between the aspirations of the successors of Ptolemy and Seleucus. The Ptolemies first established their rule, with a bureaucratic structure that was so bloated, efficient, and picayune that it would rival the European Union. The Ptolemies established an elaborate system of economic control and taxation throughout Palestine. Some of the most important documents that we have that testify to Ptolemaic control of the area is a collection of papyri known as the Zenon Archive. Zenon was an aide to the Ptolemaic finance minister Apollonius, who lived from around 261 BCE to the 240s. One of his duties was to supervise Apollonius's private estates, some of which were located in Palestine. His letters tell of his business, mainly official, while he was there between 260 and 258 BCE. By this time, the Ptolemies' centralized economic control was well established. The Ptolemies, though, could not hang on to the spit of land. Hostilities flared with the Seleucids, and over the next 60 years, Palestine became a pawn in a much larger game. This political instability ended between 201 and 198 BCE, during which time the Seleucid ruler Antiochus III, also called Antiochus the Great, solidified his control over Judea and Jerusalem. From that time on, the Ptolemies would occasionally meddle in the politics of the region, but they would not mount another serious military threat. For the Jews living in and around Jerusalem, the colonizer de jour probably would have mattered little. Their local affairs seemed to have been administered by the priests in the temple, who would have been accountable to Ptolemaic or Seleucid bureaucrats. The cultural changes would have been more visible than the political ones. Ptolemies and Seleucids, after all, were Greeks, as they called themselves. More accurately, they, like Alexander himself, were Macedonians who created for themselves an identity that was modeled after things Greek as they understood them. This is the primary distinction 
between the period or culture that we might call Greek and that which we call Hellenistic. The Greeks were actually Greek, whereas Alexander and his successors were tapping into and adapting the earlier Greek heritage. Greeks and the Hellenists were snobs. Alexander may have loved things Greek, but his imperial designs were far more military and economic than they were cultural. Far from imposing Greek language, ideas, and institutions on the people he conquered, the peoples he conquered in various ways and to various degrees adapted the ways of these Hellenist colonizers. To be Greek in Ptolemaic Egypt, for example, brought status and legal privilege. A necessary but not sufficient way to strive for this status was to learn Greek. For some two centuries of Persian rule, as you might remember, Aramaic was the lingua franca of West Asia. A Semitic language, Aramaic's diffusion was wide and persistent. Many Jews in rural areas of Palestine continued to speak and use Aramaic well into late antiquity, centuries after even the Greeks were gone. Greek, though, also quickly established a stronghold. More than a language of government, Greek was also the language of culture, and it spread quickly through Alexander's empire. In Palestine, one begins to see the increasing use of Greek in inscriptions, especially in larger cities and the coastal region. Even in the Galilee, much later now, Greek inscriptions would be found alongside Aramaic ones in the synagogues. For the Jews of the Hellenistic world, though, far more important than inscriptions was the translation of the Torah into Greek. Later sources, especially the letter of Aristeus, which was probably written in the first century BCE, contain fanciful accounts of this translation. According to this tradition, Ptolemy II, who lived from 285 to 246 BCE, commissioned a translation of the Torah for his library in Alexandria. He sent to the Jerusalem priests who supplied him with 72 learned scholars. Each did his translation separately, only to discover that their translations into Greek were identical. The point of this story was to authorize the Septuagint, as it came to be known, as the only authentic, divinely inspired Greek translation of the Torah. It is possible that Ptolemy really did commission such a translation, whether for his library or to make accessible to government bureaucrats the laws of the Jews. It is also possible, though, that the Jews of Alexandria translated the Torah into Greek on their own, for their own communal and personal use. We don't really know. The Greek of the Septuagint is a bit stilted and literal, and some of the translation choices seem a bit hard to explain coming from a Greek. But these factors are not determinative. It is likely, though, that the dating is more or less accurate. Other biblical books would be translated into Greek through the subsequent centuries. But the Greek version of the Torah was probably accessible already in the 3rd century BCE. The translation of the Torah into Greek enabled all kinds of Jewish cultural production, of which only a fraction survives. I will discuss some of this literature in later episodes as much of it seems to be produced between the 2nd century BCE and the 1st century CE. 
During that time, Jews produced chronographies, histories, philosophies, oracles, and even tragedies in Greek, based on the Septuagint version of the Bible. The Septuagint was commonly used in synagogues throughout antiquity, and it was the version that Paul used in the first century CE, and which became the official version of some Orthodox Christian movements. It is important to note that many of the genres of literature that I have just mentioned, chronography, history, philosophy, tragedy, are themselves Greek. The Bible contains some chronography and history, but not in the Greek way, and the mastery of the Greek language led to new modes of Jewish writing, and then, by extension, exposure to new ideas. This was by no means limited to Jews living outside of Palestine. Palestinian Jews, too, especially those in Jerusalem and in other places where the Greek language penetrated deeply, grappled with these new ideas. Two very similar sounding books, both originally written in Hebrew around 200 BCE, illustrate this point well. The first is the book of Ecclesiastes. Please allow me a personal diversion here. Today, the book of Ecclesiastes is read out loud in synagogues once a year on the Sabbath that falls during the week-long holiday of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. Last year, as they read it, I was sitting with my nine-year-old daughter. She was following along in the English translation as they chanted it in the Hebrew. Not long into the book, maybe the beginning of the third or the fourth chapter, my daughter turned to me and said, Abba, this book says that life is pointless, and then you die, doesn't it? I was a bit nonplussed and attempted a neutral tone as I said, yeah, something like that. She though, who won't let go of an argument if she thinks that she has victory in her grasp, pressed on. That's really what it says, doesn't it? Fine, I responded, unwilling then to make the full concession that she demanded. Fine, she mimicked, as she then declared the book boring and left to play. The thing is, she was right. If you take away the very end of the book, which exhorts faith in God, and the very beginning, which attributes the book to King Kohelet, son of David, that is presumably Solomon, we are dealing with a very unbiblical looking biblical book. Scholars, in fact, do exactly that and believe that the beginning and the ending were later additions to the book to give it more authority and tone down its deep existentialism ancient interpreters of the book, who take the book as it stands, offer a range of interpretations to account for the book's bleakness. According to one, Solomon wrote it in his old age. The book's existentialism and emphasis on the futility of life, though, seem to tie it more closely to Greek philosophical ideas, perhaps Epicureanism, than it does to biblical wisdom literature. The rabbis, recognizing the problems in the book, demonstrate some ambivalence about it. In any case, the book appears to demonstrate that educated Jews writing in Hebrew in Palestine were familiar with at least the rudiments of Greek ideas and were comfortable expressing them. The second book I want to mention here further highlights the peculiarity of Ecclesiastes. And that is the book of Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sira. In its Greek translation, 
Ecclesiasticus entered the Apocrypha, the collection of originally Jewish books that are now part of the Catholic Bible. The original Hebrew version of Ben Sira was found not that long ago in a manuscript that dates to the Middle Ages. Ben Sira, it seems, only just missed being included in the Tanakh. The rabbis quote it as authoritative a few times, and it was clearly being copied and read by some into the Middle Ages. It is, though, also far more pious, if I can use that term, than Ecclesiastes, the biblical book. Ben Sira really believed in God, and his style more fluidly combines biblical wisdom with Greek forms and ideas. It thus shows how a pious Jerusalem Jew could comfortably fit within the wider Hellenistic world in which he now found himself. The last chapters of Ben Sira glorify the history of Israel and the current high priest in a largely Hellenistic form. It is not clear why Ecclesiastes ultimately made it into the Tanakh and Ecclesiasticus didn't. Perhaps it was because Ecclesiasticus referred clearly to people and events that the later shapers of the canon believed to be in some way post-biblical. But it is clear that both books demonstrate Jewish comfort, even in Jerusalem, with Greek ideas. Language and ideas were two elements of the cultural complex that we call Hellenism. Institutions were a third. The primary institution of the Hellenistic world was the city or polis. Each polis had its own constitution with its own rights of semi-autonomous self-governance. A resident's loyalty was primarily toward one's own polis. The boundaries of a polis could stretch out into a city's dependent lands. The residents of these more outlying areas would depend on the polis to buy their agricultural products and the like, and they would be able to retreat into the walls of the polis for shelter should danger strike. Within the larger Hellenistic kingdoms, such as those of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the granting of the status of a polis to a city was a privilege, not a right. Cities by and large desired and vied for this status. Moreover, once a city became a polis, not all of its residents were enrolled as its citizens, and thus given the right to participate in governance of the city and at times a reduced tax burden. Each city had somewhat different rules. The fact that Alexandria denied citizenship to its Egyptian residents, for example, but granted to the Jews rights that, if not quite equivalent to citizenship, were at least somewhat close, led at a later time to tensions and riots between these two populations. Citizenship in a polis was most often limited to adult men who were educated in the gymnasium. This important institution, the gymnasium, in turn often would accept only those who were born of citizens. The Hellenistic gymnasium integrated the teaching of academics, sports, and warfare. For the earlier Greeks in Athens, this latter training in war was perhaps most important. There, the point was to train citizen warriors. By the Hellenistic period, though, which saw the rise of professional armies, the gymnasium de-emphasized this aspect. The gymnasium was as much a site of acculturation as it was of anything else. 
a place where boys would learn Greek and the various skills and manners that would be expected of them as citizens of the polis. At some point, it seems, they would be enrolled on a written list exactly as citizens of the polis. Gymnasium comes from the Greek root meaning naked and refer to the peculiar custom of Greek men to exercise in the nude. The Jews certainly found this odd, but so too did the Romans, and we can assume many others. For mo most Jews, far more problematic would have been the religious rites and sacrifices that were part of the normal routine of life in the gymnasium. Most Jews would have been unwilling to offer sacrifices to Greek gods. This, in turn, would have made them less welcome in the gymnasium, if it would even think to accept them in the first place. That, in turn, would limit their ability to become citizens of the polis. This basic tension would create not a few problems for Jews throughout the Hellenistic and even Roman periods. If the gymnasium was the basic political institution of the Hellenistic polis, the theater was the principal cultural and civic one. The polis's theater would host shows and assemblies and would be the central gathering place of the polis. Frequently, the shows involved dramatic productions drawn again from ancient Greek models. Although actors were generally looked down upon in the Hellenistic world, the dramas that they facilitated were clearly central to the cultural identity of their audiences. By the early third century, these three elements, language, ideas, and institutions, began to reach a recognizable and distinctive form throughout Alexander's empire. A resident of Alexandria, for example, who found himself in a polis in Seleucid Asia Minor or Mesopotamia would most likely have a language in common with at least the other citizens, be able to converse about topics of shared interest and assumptions, and recognize the major buildings of the gymnasium and theater and easily identify their function. In many other matters, of course, there would be large cultural divides, but there is enough similarity and overlap here to label this as a single cultural phenomenon, Hellenism. And yet, curiously, the citizens of these Hellenistic cities do not do this. They had no term to denote this cultural unity. They were, above all, simply citizens of their own polis. Secondarily, they would have identified with the kingdom to whom the polis was subordinate. And perhaps last, they were simply Greek. They might have felt a weak bond with other self-designated Greeks from another polis, but they did not have a name for the general similarities that would have made them all Greek. Ultimately, it was the Jewish author of 2 Maccabees, a book now also in the Apocrypha, to which we will return in a later episode, who coined this cultural complex Hellenism and contrasted it with its antithesis, Judaism. This Jew who lived in the second century BCE wrote in Greek, and yet, we assume, must have had a marginal status as a Jew within his own polis. On the one hand, it took an outsider to see what the insiders could not, and there were fundamental similarities that linked the Greek citizens of their various cities. On the other hand, the designation is clearly tendentious. 
the author might have seen features that allowed him to more or less accurately identify a cultural complex, but the author's point in doing so is primarily to advance a historical model of a clash of civilizations, through which Judaism becomes the anti-Hellenism. Again, in a later episode, I will examine in more detail this claim that Judaism and Hellenism are intractably opposed. Clearly, the relationship between Judaism and Hellenism, or, as I would prefer to frame it, the ways in which Jews learned and used the Greek language, expressed themselves in Greek terms, and joined, participated in, or critiqued the institutions of the polis, was more complex. While this complexity will be a theme in coming episodes, I want to emphasize now that Jews could not, and did not, simply reject Hellenism. They could isolate themselves, but even at the most isolated of Jewish enclaves for which we have evidence, the community at Qumran, there were shreds of Greek papyri. The vast majority of Jews, though, did not isolate themselves. Jews within a polis might, of course, be critical of what they saw around them, or simply resentful, but we should probably see this as a criticism that is embedded in any culture. Imagine, for example, a group of left-wing Jews in Manhattan's Upper West Side decrying crass American culture. Culture is not a for or against affair. Critique is part of the complex as well. As the books of Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiasticus illustrate, Jews in Palestine during the early Hellenistic period created some compositions in Hebrew. Among these compositions is one that is lesser known today, but which was quite influential in its own day. Known as the Book of Jubilees, multiple copies were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because it was a foundational text for the authors of these scrolls, and because it is in its own right a fascinating work that raises several important issues for the study of Jews in antiquity, I will devote the next episode to it. You have been listening to the podcast From Israelite to Jew with Michael Sadlow. The original score is by Neil Ginsberg with vocals by Michelle Tattenbaum. Technical assistance was provided by the Language Resource Center and the Instructional Technology Group, both at Brown University. More information can be found at msatlow.blogspot.com or at mlsatlow.com on the public education page. I welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.